This week's scripture comes from Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 6 through 10. This is the word of the Lord. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves a carved image or any likeness of any that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But show steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. This is the word of the Lord. If you're new, we are in a series where we're basically going to cover the Ten Commandments in a series that's called Gospel Completes Law. And uh, we're in the second commandment today, which is the prohibition not to make um, images. And, um, you know, I, before we kind of like get really deep into this thing, some of you are probably wondering that, that portion about, uh, the, about visiting the iniquity of those who hate God to the third and fourth generation. You might be wondering, does that mean that if I am an idolater, <laughs> that somehow my children or grandchildren are going to pay for my sins. And um, I won't really fully explicate that, but the answer is yes. Basically, the answer is yes. We here living in America like to think that we're all a bunch of atomistic individuals and every individual can kind of just make up life for themselves. That's simply just not true. It is simply not true. Now, I just wanted to make that comment um, to, to start this message um, you know, there's more to be said about that, uh, but um, today's, the other verses about the images is more than enough to talk about, but I wanted to start there simply so you have a sense of the stakes, right? The stakes of how great this is, um, that if you approach God with a stance um, to, to basically do idolatry by forming an image that isn't really him, um, it isn't just something about you or some, you know, like it's, oh, this, I'm glad it works for you. That's kind of how we, we tend to talk about it in America. But there are profound consequences um, that shape other people, including your children and your children's children. Now, with that said, that scary thing said, <laughs> let's, uh, let's get into today's message, which I've entitled Making and Worshiping Images, Part 1, Images for Idols. There's images, but what we're talking about specifically is images, images of God or images of things that, are, that we take more and more to be ultimate, okay? Part two, and this is where I really want to spend the, the bulk of our time today, which is making images of God himself, right? Um, when I was a young man, I, I didn't really understand. I remember I used to think, you know, you shall know the gods before me. And then he went into this thing about don't make yourself any carved images or any likeness, or anything, etc., etc. And I used to think, isn't that basically just the same command? I, I didn't, I thought that was basically like one command. 
And I couldn't quite understand why people thought it has to be a second command. But here is a big clue. Because one of the key problems on this sin is that we don't just make images of some false god. We want to make an image of the real god. And then thus make the name of the real god false. That's part two, right? Making images of God himself. And then I want to close, um, well, with the gospel. How can these problems be healed? Um, the problems can only be healed through the true image of the invisible God. There's an extraordinary verse I want to take you to that answers, I think, Deuteronomy. This passage, Deuteronomy chapter 8, okay? Let's go part one. Um, images for idols. So the first... There's, there's like about two basic ways that I, I, I want to talk about this. The first one is the easiest one, all right? Um, have any of you ever been to somebody's house who's Hindu? You ever been to anybody's house who's Hindu? Or have you ever been to anybody's house uh, who's Buddhist? Or you ever been to a Buddhist country? Any of you ever been to a Buddhist country? Um, they, they have these huge statues of Buddha, and, um, and they pray to them, if you ever go to somebody's house who's Hindu, um, they have images. They have statues. They have images everywhere in the house. If they take their Hinduism seriously. And I think, you know, we live in a time in America that's, you know, this very kind of secular post-Christian time. And everybody, and we just don't take spiritual, religious things like this seriously. We, we tend to go, well, that's their culture. It's nice. It's beautiful. And it is. It's actually, it's like a lot of it is physically beautiful. But um, let me tell you very explicitly from the Bible, God says, do not do this. <laughs> do not do this. Why? There's something in the human mind. <laughs> There's something in the human mind. We desperately need something that's greater, bigger from which we draw our hope and we, which we can draw our meaning. And if you could see this thing, this, here it is. And, you know, the human, the human being is a symbol maker. So it's not like ancient people or Hindus, are, they're, they're not stupid. They don't think that this wooden figurine that's sitting on their, on their bookshelf is like their God. But they know that that's a piece of wood but they know that this figurine of that God that represents that God is like, a, in their view, is a conduit of that God. There's some, we are symbol makers, and all these various different symbols, this is, shapes the meaning of our life. Now, just apart from something that's uh, religious, let me just point out something different. Take something like the United States flag, right? So, if you take the flag, and in certain parts of the country... You throw it down in the ground, and you decide to step on it and spit on it, and you're like, it's just a piece of cloth. You know what will happen? Some very big dudes will get up and want to basically beat the heck out of you. Why? Because it's a symbol. It's a symbol of something tremendously important. Now, in this case, it's not something that we are to worship. I would say some people do worship the country. Um, but... This is, this, this is where it gets very, very important here. Why God will say, don't do this. Now, um, you know, if you're not Hindu or you're not a non-Christian religion, obviously this is one way to say, 
don't worship any other gods or even have the symbolic structures of the worship of all those gods. They're not to be around. (laughs) They're not to be around. And um, and so I want to challenge you to think about that very seriously. I want you to challenge to think about that. If you're a person who considers yourself a follower of Jesus and you just like to have certain kinds of art (laughs) in your house and... um, some people really like that kind of art. And I'm, so I'm not against museums or so forth, but you might want to think of twice about having something like that in your house. This is not the kind of thing that, that the Bible takes lightly. God does not take it lightly. And, 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 I, and I reference this. He starts off with a rather scary um, warning in the text. Don't do this. And for those who do this, your grandchildren will pay. So don't do this. So I actually think this is the simplest, the simplest, most direct understanding of this command, and um, it's probably the easiest to obey, right? Now let me go to a, a second one. This one, let me, whenever you talk about things in the Bible, you know, at one level, the Bible always, th- I always think, I often think that there's so many things in the Bible that a four-year-old could understand, you just read it, you understand what it says, the four-year-old gets it. So that's why it always, sometimes really drives me crazy when some so-called sophisticated person comes along and they're trying to tell you that the Bible didn't say exactly what it just said, even though the four-year-old could tell you that's what it said, right? <laughs> so that drives me always a little crazy. But um, the Bible also can take that same thing that's simple and also there is a level of profundity, of depth. And so let me give you an example. So, um, the Bible takes very seriously the making of images. Now, I want to give you a text. So, this isn't just Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 8. So, there's another important place in the Bible um, where God is very, very serious about other, you know, about idolatry, about the making of other gods. And I want to just give you, I won't try to explicate that whole passage, but let me just give you a couple verses here. This is Romans chapter 1. It's one of the most important places in the Bible that discusses idolatry. Uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 21. So here's what it says. For although they, that is people, knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Verse 23, and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images. Here we go. They exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So here's another place in the Bible. There's some that we don't want God in our life. Since we don't want God in our life, but we like to have the glories of God. (laughs) The things that make the world, what, that, that they were glories of God. That is the, his creativity, his power, his majesty, his might. The glories of God. And then we like looking into the world for the things that somehow in one way or another they, you know, remind us of this glory or gives us touch into this glory. And then we like to put that image out. Now you think only pagan people like to do that. Really? Is that right? Let me give you an example. We love images. This is a, 
we are in an incredibly image-oriented culture. And um, everywhere you go, you can't avoid images. Now, I am not anti-image, anti-photography or design. Or the, in fact, it's all beautiful, and I'm very, very pro-art. But if some of those images, they're, they're not simply just one image among many. For some people, some images then start to shape and become something glorious that say, this is, can, will shape the meaning of my life, the hope of my life. And when you start having a symbol or some image in your life that this is, this is something you chase or something you glory in so much that it really starts to become really um, big and shape the hope and joy and glory of your life. Now we're talking about something like this. You get what I'm saying? So I just want to give you an example. And if you've been with me a long time, you... you um, and I've been your preacher, you, you, you may have heard this example, but I want to uh, just thought it'd be particularly appropriate to share it again today. So uh, when I was 16 years old, I, um, I had a dream car, <laughs> okay? The dream car was a 1988 BMW 325i convertible. It was supposed to be red, okay? And, um, and so you guys all know the symbol of the Bavarian Motorworks, don't you? You know, you got this little, uh, it's round. <laughs> it's, it's round, and it's got this little checkerboard, and um, then they give you this image on the commercial, and then they give you this message through the image that you have this awesome car, right? And then they tell you the ultimate driving machine. That thing's been around a long time, right? And let me tell you something. That image mattered to me. <laughs> That image mattered to me. Because, so when I'm 16 years old, my parents, you know, I, you know like I'm, I'm, an East, I'm, I'm, I'm an East Asian American. Um, my parents, you know, brainwashed me good. They thought I was going to be a doctor. And I would go around telling people, I want to be a doctor to help, 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 help people. Of course, that's why I want to be a doctor, right? But in my heart, <laughs> yeah, I kind of wanted to help people. I did, yeah, I did genuinely want to help people, but... You know, I'm not going around telling people I like the symbol of the Bavarian Motor Works. And I want to have a car that's got that symbol. And, and you know, it, it, I didn't need the 7 Series because, you know, that's, that's gaudy. Okay, you know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not shallow like that, okay? So, you know, the 3 Series was, was what we would do. And it would tell people, you know, like, I've made it. I'm somebody. And I've been successful, and uh, we have, you know, we have comfortable money here, right? And so that image, see that image? That image represented something for me about the meaning of my life, about the hope of my life. Now, is there anybody in this room here that you don't think, that you think you are immune from some image shaping your hope, your heart, your love, your dreams, your worship. <laughs> Is there anybody here in this room? And let me tell you something this. If you think, this sounds kind of weird. You know, if you're a person who, who is, uh, you know, you don't consider yourself very religious, you're like, this sounds a little strange. It, it is strange because let me tell you something. You can't not worship. And one of the hooks for worship is images. I read a book a number of years ago. And 
It's a really fascinating book called The Culting of Brands. I forget the name of the author, but go get it. <laughs> and you know what The Culting of Brands is basically telling you? So here's, the, here's what I, my takeaway from the book. The takeaway from the book is if you want to do really great marketing for your company, you should come up with an iconic image, a brand. That brand would symbolize a way of life, a hope, a dream of something. And then the people who buy your product would love you, not simply because they love the product, but because they're essentially joining a cult. In other words, a good company and good marketing functions like a good cult, like a very, very good manipulative cult. So... You have all these people in America going, I don't need church, I don't need God, and then you have all the cults out to get you through their images. See why this command is starting to matter? So I want to challenge you to think about this. You should start thinking about all your brands and all the images that you love. And you might want to start thinking about, well, you might want to throw some of them away. That's a form of repentance. I doubt I'll ever drive a BMW. <laughs> okay. Let's go to part two. Um, all right, let's, let's get into what I consider the, this is, the this, is, this is, I think, the heart of today's message. Right. Making images of God himself. Um, let me ask your brother to project this passage. Let's go to Exodus chapter 32. You know, it's, it's one thing to go, you know, I'm into Buddha, and then, you know, whether you're going to make a Buddha statue, or I'm into some other vision, and, you know, you, you buy into the image of the hope that some culting of brands marketing campaign has hooked you for. But this is something, this is a, a deeper, this is a really deep and um, profound issue, and it particularly afflicts those who think they are Christians. This is for you who's a Christian. And you consider, because like, I don't believe in Buddha. I'm certainly not going to be into BMW or something like this. It's going to be Jesus. Right? Well, this, this is something I really want you to pay attention to. So, this is a very important passage of scripture where, um, the Ten Commandments have already been given in Exodus chapter 20. So God has already made a covenant with, the peop with his people. And then later on, because Moses has been on the mountain praying too long and spending time with God, some, they, they then start to slide toward a form of wickedness. And so let, let's read it. It goes like this. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, so Aaron is Moses' brother, and he's basically the second in command. And said to him, up, make us gods who shall go up before us. And for this, Moses, the man who brought us out of the land, we do not know what has become of him. All right? So Aaron said to him, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand 
and fashioned it with the graving tool and made the golden calf. And listen to the next part. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Let me just stop there. Who do they think this calf is? Who is the one who brought them? I mean, this is still within the memory. I mean, they, they can remember the Red Sea. <laughs> they knew that the, they, they were there for all the plagues of Israel. They know exactly who is the God who took them out of Egypt. They know it's Yahweh. But here we go. Now we have this golden calf, and they're saying, oh, this is the God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Verse 5. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, the, the calf, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh. There it is right there. Capital L-O-R-D. That's the name of God. Shall be a feast to Yahweh. So now let's make an altar. Now we have this thing that God is going to hate. And we're going to call the name of our God to this thing. That's what he just said. Goes on. And they rose up early the next day and burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. In other words, they, here we go. Then they brought up a worship. Verse 7. And the Lord, Yahweh, said to Moses, Go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way I've, that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. There it is. The Bible repeats it, so we can't miss it. And Yahweh said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. Scary, isn't it? Then the next portion, Moses then pleads, like, you can't go kill these people. They're your people, basically. So then God relents. Moses goes down, sees all this idolatry, and gets so furious, then he takes up a sword, and then he starts, starts chopping all the people who are idolaters. That's basically what happened. So here you have this story. It's exactly this verse. Don't do this. And it's not talking about making some other god, Buddha or somebody else. It's, it's some image, it's a false statue of Yahweh himself. Now, let's just stop for a moment. Do we do this? Do we do this? Let me tell you something. Throughout 2,000 years of Christian history, oh yeah. Oh yeah. It's a serious problem. It's a very serious problem. So let me give you some examples, okay? So, Give you one that's common today. So um, I like calling it the, um, you know, uh, there's a, um, you know, one of my favorite preachers is Tim Keller. And he had this phrase in one of the sermons that he gave. He called it, have you guys ever seen a, mo a movie called The Stepford Wives? Anyone ever see that movie? It's not that good a movie. Maybe two of you. Two of you seen that movie. Okay. Well, there's two versions of it and both are, both are mediocre movies. Okay. But, but, the, ba but the basic premise of the movie is, 
These people show up. There's this weird town called Stepford. And all the wives are completely subservient to all the husbands. And they completely are always made themselves, dolled themselves up. And this one woman who's like a normal, she's like, why, is every, why are these women so weirdly creepy? Because somewhere along the line, what the men had did was killed their wives and made fake robots that look exactly like their wives, except now their wives say and do exactly what they want. Okay? And um, Tim Keller said, oh, you know what? It seems like a cute story, isn't it? Except that it's much worse than that. We like to make a Stepford God. That's what he said. So let me give you some examples of the Stepford God, which is essentially Tim Keller's modern-day version of the golden calf. You get, the, you get it? The Stepford God? It's the golden calf. It's the same thing. And so today, here, here's a God that I hear a lot of Christians say they believe in. This God is totally easygoing. He completely believes in cheap grace. He's completely okay with everything that you do. And he's going to make sure that you never suffer. You never suffer and you will become rich. Your children will never get sick. And it's totally okay if you never go to church. You don't know any Bible. You don't care about the poor. It's okay if you cut corners, lie, sleep around here and there. You know, substance abuse. But, hey, you're a Christian. There's somehow people have this view of God. And I would say, if you meet this very cheap grace view of God, I would say that's a step for God. <laughs> that's a golden calf. And you know what? They call this God Jesus. That's what they call him. There's a lot of Christians today. That's their view of Jesus. That's their view of the Bible. Have they never read this part of the Bible? <laughs> they haven't read this part where it says, if you do this, it's, we'll affl- I will afflict your third and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren. I mean, that doesn't sound, like, doesn't sound like this easygoing, cheap grace God. So one of the first things I want to teach you is we are a profoundly grace-preaching church. But grace is not cheap. Grace is never cheap. You know why grace is free to you and me? Because somebody else paid. <laughs> And he did not pay so that we can live, basically, however some stupid way that we want, justify it, call Jesus, call him Jesus, and then treat Jesus like he's a lackey in our life so that we do whatever the heck we want. No, that is not why Jesus paid for our sins. He paid for our sins so that we can obey the Father like he obeys the Father. So that we can be made more glorious and beautiful like him. He paid so that he can make us more truly wonderful the way we ought to be. So this is one of the most common ones. So let me give you a second one. So um, there's a a view very common throughout history, which is I'll call it the pick and choose how you understand the Bible. (laughs) Pick and choose how you understand the Bible. So people say, I believe in the God of the Bible. But then one they basically don't know the Bible. And then two, anytime they find a portion of the Bible that's inconvenient or difficult or offensive, they're like, eh, it does not, that, that part's, I'm not, well, I don't need to deal with that part. You know when you do that, you're like, well, 
that just seems like, um, like that doesn't have consequences. Oh, it has consequences. Because usually somewhere along the line, when people feel they could freely just start snipping out and cutting whatever they like in the Bible, like, I like this part. Forgiving, loving, so great. Wait a second. God actually wants us to be holy, and he gets really upset if we become idolaters. I'm not sure I like that part. I, don't, I won't worry about that too much, right? Um, when you start doing that, what you start to do is you start forming from this very, very broken and false pictures because you decided all the inconvenient portions of the pictures of God from the Bible, you're just going to chuck or jettison or ignore all those portions. What you're going to start to do is you're going to start to form a golden calf in your mind. You're going to start to form some vision of God and he is going to be not the real God. And all human beings have, we all have some tendency to do this but it can get really, really serious. And so let me just give you some examples, some historical examples, right? So, um, all throughout Christian history, there always always been some people who read some portion of the Bible and say, you know, it says that God sent some people to hell. Gosh, that's a really mean God. I don't think I like that. So, I don't think we need that portion. So now you have a God who is super kind and he's really loving. Nobody ever gets to go to hell. And you're like thinking, but doesn't that just sound like God anyway? No, it's not like God. <laughs> it sounds like a really loving God. We all want a loving God. These people who say, nobody's going to go to hell. And these people who are Christians who say, well, yeah, if you're not redeemed, you're going to go to hell. But he's really, really loving. Isn't that a similar God? It's not a similar God. <laughs> it's not a similar God at all. This God, this God's a step for God. Why? Because he's not a God of justice. He's basically a profound cosmic wimp that I guess Hitler can go to heaven. I guess child molesters can go to heaven. I guess people who just decide that all his word doesn't matter, that's fine, right? That's fine with this God, isn't it? That's a, that's a very deficient and profoundly different, it's not like a similar kind of God. It's a different God. It's just simply a different God. And just because you don't have a statue of it, there is an image that is being made. That's exactly the, the, I'll call it the universal, the universalistic understanding of God. I'll give you another one. This one's super common too. The, the God who doesn't, need a, who doesn't need that there's sin is going to be paid for. And so there's many Christian churches today, and they don't believe that Jesus had to come to come to earth, and then had to pay for our sins, and that's what the cross actually is. The cross actually is a payment of, this, of, this, of, the, of, of the wrath that we deserve. They don't like that portion. And so the classic, under, the classic theological terminology for that redemptive work accomplishment is called atonement. And essentially they're saying, well, you don't have to have atonement. The really important thing is that you have really good intentions and you try really, really hard to get close to God and then you try to behave like Jesus. And if you behave like Jesus, then, then you know, well, that's, that's Christianity. That is not Christianity. <laughs> that is not Christianity. And so if you ever go to a Christian church and the cross as, is not the fundamental thing that God himself had to do for us in our place that we could not ever do for ourselves. 
soon as atonement is taken out of, uh, uh, out of the church, what you're talking about now is you're talking about a different God. Now all you have left is legalism. That's all you've got. And if that's the church you go to, if you go to a Christian church, and there's a lot of them, by the way. There's a lot of them. And especially throughout the 20th century, some of the most dominant churches in America, whole denominations went to this doctrine. And so you have this view. They call him Jesus. They call him Yahweh. They have really, really learned scholars. And yet, at the center of their understanding of the gospel, no longer is a penal substitutionary work by Jesus for our place, and thus salvation is holy by grace. Does that make sense? This is really, really important. Okay, let me give you two more examples. One more. Uh, one more from like outside. Um, you guys have heard this thing called um, the health and wealth, um, the health and wealth gospel. <laughs> it is not the gospel. <laughs> the health and wealth gospel is not the gospel. It is awful. <laughs> If you come to church and you try really hard and you become really buddies with Jesus, then Jesus will give you your best life now, to quote a very famous health and wealth gospel preacher. Right? That is breaking this command. That is, this is, this, is a, this is a step for Jesus. This is a golden calf Jesus. And so, you know, God does want you to have a good life. But he may not necessarily want you to be rich. And, um, and if you ask me, it seems like the vast majority of Christians, he doesn't seem to care if they're rich because he doesn't make us rich. And he doesn't even keep us from suffering. But what he does do is, in your lack of money, he will be our provision. He'll be more than enough. And in our suffering, in our weakness, in our hurt, he will be there with us and he will sustain us. That's our God, right? The God who knows suffering, this God of the cross, I'm with you in your suffering. That's the true God. Not the one where if you give him a hundred bucks, he'll give you a thousand bucks tomorrow, which is the telltale sign of the health and wealth preacher and if you hear your preacher say that, you should run away. Okay? Um, one more. Let me give you, um, before we, we, we get to, we need some good news because there's a lot of bad news, right? Um, I, mean, I want to give you a personal example. So um, this, is, this could, maybe, and many of you will be able to relate to something like this, right? You're like, okay, I'm not into health and wealth and et cetera, et cetera. And um, which I hope all these things have not touched you, but maybe something like this has, right? So when I was in college, when I was in college, this was like maybe about 12th grade to about my junior year in college, right? So this lasted about three so years or so, and um, three to four years. I got into this um, habit where when I went to church, what I really wanted was um, music in a certain way. <laughs> and if the praise song um, would kind of touch my emotions in a certain kind of way, then I believed that God was there. <laughs> and he was close to me. And he loved me. Right? 
But if that didn't happen, then I was like, oh, well, I guess that wasn't really that good of a Sunday. And I guess God is kind of distant. And if you had asked me if I believe that God, you know, reaches you through the music, of course, it's not only God reaches you through the music, but somewhere I had in my heart, I kind of got into this rut where God had to come through the music because the music really worked for me. I don't know what you, I hope you don't feel this way, but I'm sure you sometimes do where you come to church and you're like, man, the preacher's boring. All right, and he's going on way too long. I'm sure that happens in this church, okay? Um, and, well, I, I would go to church, and I felt that way all the time. <laughs> all the time, every single week. I was like, oh, the message is so boring. And it's like, the sooner this is over, the better. Let's get to the songs, <laughs> right? And then at least I can, like, feel something and be touched by God. And so the music became like, like a kind of like this view that I had this view in my mind. The music is the, is that's the way that God's going to reach me. And so I had this idea in my mind, which essentially started posing a false image of God to me. And I grew up with good theology, guys. <laughs> okay. I was taught rigorous theology in high school. So it's not even just about how good your theology is. We're talking about the nature of your worship life, the nature of your prayer life. Everybody, it doesn't matter who you are and how good your theology is. When you get down in your room and you pray, or when you come to worship and you, and you want to worship God, you have some concept in your mind, in your imagination of how you're engaging with God. For me, it had to come through like, well, like I, I got, you know, unless I have these feelings, then God isn't close to me. And the feelings, well, you know, I need the music, so let's, let's get to the music. You know what happened? Somewhere in the middle of my, my uh, sophomore year, it all dried up. No songs worked. <laughs> it's like all the songs stopped working. <laughs> and, 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 you know, that was, that, that was about the time in my life when I, I started listening to, like, angry music, <laughs> you know, Nirvana. Like, I enjoyed Nirvana during that period of my life. And I, I don't think it's a coincidence. And, and then, I, don't, I can't remember exactly how this happened, but this passage came to me. I can't remember exactly. And it kind of lit up that somewhere I was shoving God into a box. That God wasn't the big God of the Bible who was there for me no matter what, no matter how I felt. I could walk into church utterly crummy. I have sinned left and right throughout the week and I feel very, very far from God, but my feelings are not the truth. My feelings are not the truth. What the Bible says is true. And that somehow, like, I was, the, the, I stopped essentially seeking God, and I stopped essentially seeking Him. I was seeking an experience of Him. And over time, my experience of Him started becoming my false image of Him. And I was depending on this little, this God in my box that I can pull out to get my experience. And then I knew he loved me. You ever get into this place? If you get into this place, it's a bad place. <laughs> Don't go there. And if you're in this place today, today's a good day. <laughs> today's a good day. That your image can be broken. 
so that you can have the real God again. Let's close. You know, um, I want to take you to this verse. There's an extraordinary verse in the Bible. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. You know, there's something, I think there's something really important that when the fall happened and God left our presence, it's like we just couldn't see him anymore. He may be present, but we can't see him anymore. And most, the vast majority of us, we can't take all these abstract ideas from God. It's like, if he's invisible, he's invisible. And like, dang it, it's pretty darn hard to have a relationship and feel close to an invisible God. And if that's the case, then just our minds and our hearts feel so empty, we have to, it wanders off to something else to fill us up. And whether we're going to, it's going to be some other image or it's going to be, we're going to make this image and then call him Jesus. But then I think God knows this. I think God knows this. And here's the verse. So Colossians 1. He, who do you think he is? Jesus. <laughs> Jesus is the image of the invisible God. We need an image. God gave us an image. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, invisible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. And then here's the way I want, you, I want to particularly focus on this. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile himself to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. You know why we're not reconciled to God <laughs> while we're so broken and why we love these images so much and trying to fill up because we're so bereft without the fullness of God without all his glorious attributes all his divine power and beauty and love and mercy and wisdom it's like most of us are just such a we just have this incredibly thin idea of what all those things could be and so in our hearts we're so like we, it's like this, it's this incredible emptiness. And so it makes us so vulnerable toward this kind of idolatrous disobedience. And so what did he do? What did God do? He sent us his son to be the image, saying, you want an image. You know what you need? You need me. But since you're always making false images, let me give you the real me. So he became human. So we could picture him. And in him, the one who was crucified, the one who was lowly and yet absolutely magnificent. In him, we wouldn't just have an image of God. We'd have God. 
the very fullness of God. You'd have everything that is in God, everything, everything that holds all, you see it, it holds everything together. <laughs> Christ holds all things together. He's before the church. That do you understand that Christ, the image of God, who is the fullness of God, needs to have preeminence in your heart, in your mind. Not some BMW image or whatever it is for you. Not some false picture of God that you're trying to depend on, but Christ and nothing less, no one less than the full Jesus. And only he can reconcile us to him because only he can step into this vast, this, this emptiness where we're so desperately longing for God. And he can step in and say, worship me for I have loved you. And I can heal you and make all things come together. If he can make all of creation come together and whole, he can make your heart come together and whole. And he knows that we sin against him and we make him at the false step for Jesus. And he will say, repent of that and see me and know me and believe me again. And by my blood, I'll forgive you and reconcile you. And make you whole. So brothers and sisters, I want to close this way. Um, you know, you, you are, many of you have been Christians for many years. And if I tell you that Jesus, Jesus is the true and full God, that is not a new word for you. But I want to ask you for something today. Right? I want to challenge you for something today. That would you have a pursuit See, Jesus is like, there's no end to the glory of Jesus. There really isn't. But you have to get to know him. You have to get to know him. And you have to ask to get to know him. Otherwise, you will be in danger of turning him into something small, false view of Jesus, or you're going to be tempted to turn to some other idol and image. Would you think about this this very important commandment and say, Lord, I want to learn what this means, this fullness of God in the image of God, Jesus, so that I could really, really know you and only really love you and worship you. Let's pray. Lord, it's not an easy message to take in today. Um, John Calvin said that the human heart is a factory of idols, and boy, are we. And um, we desperately long for divinity, for glory, your glory. And it seems that if we can't have you, we will find some false ver version of you but may we throw these false versions away because none of them are you except you. <laughs> Thank you, Lord Jesus. You came. And as terrible as we could be, you came to wash us and forgive us and fill our emptiness with your greatness, with your fullness. Help us to be repenting and running after the true Jesus, you. And help us, if 
If there's anyone here today or any one of us who wonders if there's a step for Jesus in their mind, Lord, help them to see it. I, I dare say that if you don't deeply love the Jesus of your mind, he's not the real Jesus. <laughs> that if he's not glorious to you, you haven't seen him enough. Help us this year to see you, to truly know you, to truly love you. In Jesus' name.